By God's grace, we turn now to his word, and I'm so excited to share uh, and to explain what's happening in this passage. The title of my message <clears throat> is Holy Resistance. Maybe that sounds a little bit Bonhoeffer-ish to you, um, but it's, it's God's resistance against ungodly and unjust powers. And the tagline, which I did not add there, but it was actually the original title of my message, is Don't Persecute the Church. Don't, that's a bad idea. Don't persecute the church or God's people. Uh, it's a bad idea to set yourself against the living God and against his people. So for those listening whose desire it might be to minimize or squash the influence of the church, uh, turn. Turn to Christ and join his church. Uh, that's what this passage is about. That's what, is, that's what we're learning here. This is the final appearance of the Apostle Peter. This passage. This is it. He disappears from the record after this uh, passage in Acts. He's no longer heard of or spoken of in the biblical record. We do learn from history outside of the Bible that Peter was later crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified in the manner of his Savior, Jesus Christ. And so there are, if you ever visit the Vatican or look online, there are paintings of a man crucified upside down. That's, those are depictions thought to have been Peter. But he's gone. He's, he's, he participates in less than half of the actual account, the record of the book of Acts. He was Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but he was Jesus' lead apostle. We think of the apostles as this co-equal group of 12, and in one sense they were. But also Christ brought to himself a sort of an inner circle. We know those as the three, James John and Peter. Peter was sort of the head of that group of three. And then we had James and John. And then we had the others who seemingly exerted a little bit less influence on that early church. But Peter was central. He preached those massive sermons in, in the early book of Acts. He saw the conversion of, of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem. He has essentially founded the church in Jerusalem. And then he's gone. He's gone. It's, the, the text ends almost mysteriously. Then Peter went away from there and went on to another place. He's just gone. And it was just, it's astounding. And yet we see in, the, in Revelation, we actually see the 12 stones of the new city inscribed with 12 names. And those are the names of the apostles. So even the most insignificant of the 12 apostles is inscribed in the new city. Um, we, we read in the scriptures that the, uh, the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets, the cornerstone of which is Jesus Christ. So it, it's, it, it, we cannot overstate the influence and importance of these apostles, even as they fade from the scriptural record. Peter would also write two epistles himself. He would actually write two letters himself. We're going to refer to one of those this morning. But here's this bold, daring, and fiercely committed apostle, and he fades from the record. And his work and, and, and his words are, are now forever inscribed in the Bible for us to learn and to follow after. And I would just like to add my encouragement to you that Peter may, I mean, Peter may think, well, really, at chapter 12, couldn't you just have had me till 16 or 18, somewhere over the halfway mark? It's like a minor character in a movie and they're gone before, you know, the first intermission or something. And, but your work in Christ is eternal. 
what you do for the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. It will last, you know, and, and none of us are going to be remembered in the scriptures. None of us are even going to be remembered by our great-grandchildren unless they're really keen um, family tree researchers. You may not even know the, na- the first name of your great-grandfather, but Christ remembers and sees our work, um, and, and we are not even of the likes of the apostles, but what an encouragement is for us to know that even... The great Peter fades from view in the account, and the Bible really shifts over to Paul after that. By this point in the scriptures, persecution against Christians is now mainstream. It's now happening widely. There is little concealing or hiding animosity towards the church, hatred toward the church. It is now out in the open. It's being participated in by laymen and by uh, citizens and by rulers And magistrates, the church is indeed under attack. And yet what our passage shows us this morning is that the church will go on. The church will go on. Because Jesus promised that it would. Church will not be defeated. And so what does our text show us? There's three things I want to outline that our text outlines for us. Number one, godless powers are weak, insecure, fickle, and unjust. Now, we in our time in the West here, we have come under this uh, terrible influence of thinking that the ruling powers are some secular arena. We've been con- the church has been convinced about that by our leaders, by our, our wider culture, thinking that, that somehow democracy is, is this own, it's this neutral force which is somehow inherently good and useful and that basically rulers and Christians even ourselves have come to be convinced that prime ministers and and judges and that's a secular matter and they deal with the secular world and we in the church just need to worry about church activities. But the reality is that the scripture gives instruction for and commands for those who rule. And so when ungodly and godless powers reject God and his law, they have no other option but to display their weakness and their insecurity through injustice. Injustice, sorry. They have no foundation in in the timeless law of God or his character, and so they resort to evil, pragmatic means of extending their power. And that's what we see in this text. It begins with Herod. We have Herod the king who is laying violent hands on some who belong to the church. Now, who is this Herod? He's the grandson. Herod is a title, by the way. It's not his first name. It's a title. He's from the Herodian dynasty. And his grandfather was the Herod, the king of the Jews, during Jesus' life. So he's the grandson of the Herod who ordered the death of every male under two years old. He comes from a very dubious line of leaders, a very evil line of leaders. This, his grandfather, Herod, threatened by the title king of the Jews, because that's the title he was given by Rome. He was an under ruler. He was sort of like uh, given big boy privileges to rule over this group called the Jews by Rome. And he threatened, hearing that Jesus' title was king of the Jews, he ordered that all the babies under two be killed, all the male children, and they were. What an evil, evil means of protecting one's own power. And his grandson is in some ways 
no different. He has been handed down this pragmatic, evil means of ruling. He was also king of the Jews at this time, Herod, the grandson. Um, he had lived a life loaded down by personal debt. He had taken on debts to pay back other debts, and he was basically shackled to his financial irresponsibility personally. He had been overheard making careless comments against Tiberius, the Roman emperor. That's a bad idea when you're just an under king. And he was imprisoned by Tiberius. After Tiberius died, he was released and he was posted in Palestine. He was posted over the Jews at that time. Now, he, so to say the least, he had a very shaky relationship with Rome. And these under kings, this is how the Romans kept their kingdom together. They had a huge dynasty, right? The Roman Empire. They did this by very pragmatic means. They let people practice their own religion. They hired kings to rule in different areas, but these kings were very much figureheads who reported back to the emperor and who were beholden to the emperor and his uh, so-called lordship. But he had a shaky relationship with Rome and he wanted to establish his credibility and his loyalty to them. Now, the best way to do that in Rome was to show that you had control over your, your region. It's like, if I'm in charge of this, if I want to stay in my position, I got to show that I have a handle on it. These people keep the law. They're not rowdy. They don't get out of control. And I'm a good leader. Look, Rome, look how good a job I'm doing. And so this Herod had to do that. He had to demonstrate that he was the kind of leader that Rome could trust. Pilate took the very same approach during the life of Jesus Christ. When the Jews sensed that they couldn't convince Pilate to kill Jesus, what did they say to him? They blackmailed him. They said, if you let this man live, you are no friend to Caesar. What's Caesar going to think if you let this man live? Because the charge was, this man is stirring up the crowds. Pilate, are you letting this guy get the crowds out of control? You wouldn't want Caesar to find that out, would you? And so Pilate recognizes to maintain his position and security, he has to get rid of this Jesus. What an evil way of governing the world. Just to take pragmatic steps, totally devoid of moral direction. I'll kill this innocent man because I think it'll keep me in power. Herod is doing the very same thing. He wants to keep the Jews in Jerusalem happy. That is the Jews who have not turned to Christ. So what does Herod do? If I kill some people from the church, if I lay violent hands and imprison some from the church, then the Jews will be happy because they don't like the church. Like the Pharisee, we're talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest and his family. We're talking about the ruling Jews, the important Jews. If I lay violent hands on the church, I'll make the Jews happy. And if the Jews are happy, I get to keep my job. So Herod is falling in this same, playing political games, which to this day, play, the, playing the political game, playing the, the crowd, angling toward changing your policies, doing whatever you have to take to do to, to stay in power, that's the sign of ruling without the knowledge of God, ruling without trust in the sovereign God, ruling without acknowledging that your power comes from God and you are accountable to him, not to the people. I mean, democracy, as we see it today, is almost a self-defeating system because it literally will slide down the hill to the lowest place where water settles. 
Politicians put out surveys, and then they say, that's what my platform will be. I mean, what, what, a, what a silly way of leading. We are literally saying, I don't have any qualification or ideas to lead, but why don't you tell me what you want from me, and I'll be that. One of the uh, candidates for the Democratic Party in the primaries right now, his slogan is literally, I am you. What's his name? I forget his name. But he's, he's one of the, he's not some fringe candidate. He's been in the debates. His slogan is, I am you. I have no thoughts that you do not give me. And this is exactly the way Pilate was ruling. It's the way Herod was ruling. It's, why don't you tell me what to do? Why don't you tell me what you want? And then I'll do it. Instead of the, lead, the leader and the ruler saying, what does God have me do? What is the law that I am to uphold and to keep? And if I lose my job or if I am kicked out or whatever, then so be it. I would rather be thrown on the streets for obeying the voice of God than exalted to the high places for compromising on everything that is right. That's so true for the church. It's true of leaders today. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you just like to see a, a, a principled politician stand up and say, this is what I believe, this is what is right. Vote me out if it's not what you want. Ruling by principle is a sign of acknowledging that there is some truth to be discovered, but these guys are just simply ruling to keep their jobs. So he lays violent hands on the church. This violence, as I was saying, was becoming just normal in culture. Executions were now becoming commonplace. We're seeing this in, in greater uh, quantity now. And now it's to the point, we're not just, crucif we're not just um, executing deacons like Stephen, you know, little street preachers. We see James the Apostle. This is the first apostolic execution. This is one of the twelve. One of Jesus' chosen twelves executed uh, James. He's one of the sons of thunder. He was one of the bold ones who said, would you like us to call fire down from heaven, Jesus? Like, we want to get this kingdom rolling. And says he was taken down by the sword. Now, that's very likely in Deuteronomy. We learned that the law, God's law to the Jews was that if anyone was preaching any other gods, he would be killed by the sword, not by stoning. He would be literally cut down which tells us probably that James was a fierce and bold preacher for Jesus Christ because they thought Jesus was claiming to be a God who he wasn't. Well, we believe Jesus is God, which is why he claimed to be God, which is why the, the Jews were literally executing people for preaching Jesus as the Son of God, God among us, God with us, Emmanuel. And so very likely, James was known for preaching. We don't, learn, we don't hear any of his sermons. We don't see any of the churches he planted. All we learn in the book of Acts about him is that he was killed for preaching Christ. One of the 12 apostles, names inscribed on one of the 12 stones in the New Jerusalem. He was known for preaching Christ, but it didn't please the Jews or the Romans to hear that. Because Jesus is Lord was a direct assault on the sovereignty of Caesar. Caesar demanded that he be called Lord. And that was the one thing Christians would not concede. They would not do it. So why were, why were Christians being cut down? Why were they being executed? Why were they being imprisoned, having violent hands laid on them? Christians paid taxes. We see that in the time of Jesus Christ. He didn't tell people not to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, he provided the tax money through the mouth of a fish. We were, to, we're told to honor authority, and Peter himself would later write this. In his epistle in 1 Peter 
2, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, he says, honor the emperor. Love the brotherhood, honor the emperor. In other words, give your dues and your honor to him because he's a power put in there, put in place by God. So, so why were these good citizens being arrested and killed? Because they preached Christ as Lord. They preached that there was no authority higher than Jesus. They preached that there was one to whom everybody would give an account. <clears throat> Again, the Jews didn't like this because they liked how God left them kind of on earth to do their own thing. God was sort of a distant God that they didn't have to deal with directly because they had Moses and Moses went between them and God. So they didn't really have to deal with God face to face. But when Jesus came <clears throat> and, show, and, and God showed up on their doorstep, they hated him. So it pleased the Jews to be violent to these Christians who proclaimed Christ, and it pleased the Romans who insisted that Caesar was the highest power, even divine. Friends, I want to remind you that this is how a godless authority will deal with Christians in our time. There is no mistake that our, that our times are seeing a, an abandonment of an acknowledgement of who God is in our ruling authorities. This is not irrelevant to us or insignificant to us. This is the country that we live in. We are seeing a, a decline in understanding and submission to God in our ruling authorities. And the only option at that point for a government is to rely on deviance, pragmatism, targeting Christians. They will do this to make an example of us. They will target Christians. They will single out Christians. They will eventually arrest Christians for what we believe, not for crimes that we commit, not for starting violent insurrections, as we'll see here, the church does not participate in. We will be targeted and arrested for proclaiming Christ and the whole counsel of his word that will take place in Canada unless we see from the people a demand that rulers submit to God. So we better get busy evangelizing. We better get busy doing the work of the Lord, spreading his word, doing good deeds so that people will see who we follow and who we love. We better get on loving each other so that they'll see who Christ is so that our people will elect God-fearing people to preserve freedom in Canada. Freedom cannot exist apart from acknowledging God because if God is taken out of the picture, the government must reign with an iron fist. It has to because it sees itself as God and as an absolute authority. So friends, this is the job of the church. This is the situation we are moving toward in Canada. We must be aware of it. We must pay attention. Christians will be targeted and we will be made examples of to the people. Not because we're so inherently per se hated by a given authority. I don't think Herod could have really cared one way or another, what the church was doing. But in order to maintain power, Christians were the easiest vehicle to get there. If I persecute Christians, I'll be in with the authorities. And it's no different today. So Peter was arrested during the feast. Verse uh, 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews that James was killed. So, so the Jews are getting excited that the church is suffering. They want to see the church cut down. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. So when he saw the positive results in the survey, he went on to continue persecuting the church. And he arrested Peter. This was during the days of unleavened bread. The unleavened bread uh, feast took place right after the Passover. 
It was a week-long feast. Jerusalem was packed with uh, followers of Judaism. Those who wanted to obey the law, they wanted to partake in the feast. And there was a week-long feast after that. So Jerusalem would swell in population at this time. And so Herod thought, well, I'm not going to kill Peter. I'm going to make an example of there's so many people here. I'm going to parade him out and demonstrate my power over him and his so-called God. That was his plan because it pleased the people. He put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Four squads, that's two soldiers each. Two would be outside. Two squads would, would be guarding the door of the cell. And on the inside, two guards would be chained to Peter, one on either side. This was a heavy guard on Peter. This was like if you captured Jason Bourne, you need to, there's that scene in Naples, Italy, where that clerk guard thinks that he's going to be tough with Jason Bourne, and Bourne just busts out of there. Because this guy has no idea who this guy is. And these guys thought, we're not going to let anything happen to this, because they also believe that the apostles stole the body of Christ. Right? These guys are sneaky. So we're going to put four squads, we're going to guard Peter heavily until the right time until Herod has a plan until I decide to bring him out. He's going to be in that cell. He delivered him over to the squads to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Look, here's one of the leaders of the church. I got him. You were worried the church was going to get out of hand, but look, I have their leader. I have the chief apostle. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. So what the church is recognizing is that their leader has been uh, taken down. He's been arrested. There, another apostle has been cut down by the sword. Again, this passage speaks prophetically to rulers of our day don't set yourselves against God's people. Allow them to worship freely and to flourish because God's command to his people is to make disciples of the world, to bring about the kingdom of God, to, to be there for the flourishing and for the good of culture. We are here to see the world renewed. Even as all creation awaits the longing and the groaning for new creation, we are put on this earth to bring that about through our jobs, through our ministries, through our speaking and our action. We are here for the good of humanity. And Herod sets himself against the people of God. Now look what the church does. But earnest prayer was made for him uh, by the church to God. The first thing that the church does is not begin to draw up the plans for the prison for a break-in. We got to get Peter out. They begin to pray. The church is not an institution of insurrection or insubordination. I call this holy resistance again because it's, it's, it's God who intervenes in this next stage. Our, our next part of our outline teaches us that God is opposed to the proud, which Peter also wrote, but he stands by his people. He stands by the church. He is with his people. Now, this is Peter. This is not just like somebody they can do without. If you're playing chess and somebody gets your queen in like the first five moves, don't you wish you could just go back and say, oh, I made a mistake. I need the, right? I need the queen. I need my important players. We need Peter. 
I don't know if you've ever been part of a church or heaven forbid you would believe, Tim, about me that I'm some help to this church. I mean, it's God's word that has built our church and will continue to. But do you ever think of somebody in ministry like, we, what would we do without them? What if I got arrested? Do you think this church would suffer much? No, I think this church would be emboldened and empowered to grow in ministry. Now, I'm not asking for that. I'd like to continue doing this work as I do it. Um, but God is not dependent on the circumstances of the leaders in the church. And so the church begins to pray. Now, certainly they may have been tempted, you know, to look at Herod and his and his, the legacy of his family and how evil he was. And don't we, don't we have a tendency to look, to look at leadership that we see so godless and just think this, uh, the church has to stand up and do something. But insurrection and violence is not our call. It is not our task. God has given the sword to the ruling authorities. And so what does the church do? What is our great weapon? It's prayer. Are you disappointed by that answer? Do you wonder why we pray every single Sunday morning at 9.30? We are doing so because we are literally entering as a congregation into spiritual warfare as we gather. You think this is just a casual social gathering of God's people? Oh, I hope the coffee's good after church. No, we are engaging in spiritual warfare even now as seed of the gospel is being planted and sown in your heart. Satan is quick to snatch it up. Satan is quick to sow all kinds of tares among the wheat. Satan is quick to introduce distraction and comfort and, and ways that we he lulls us away from Christ. Satan is on our heels to destroy the work of Christ. Even as we sit here now, even as the word is being sown in your heart for obedience. And so we pray. We pray every single Sunday morning for God to accomplish his work. Because God works through prayer. Although he is sovereign, he will do what he will. He has not only ordained the end of what will happen, which is the church will prevail. He has ordained the means. He has chosen how it will take place. And that is often through a praying church. Now, what do you think they prayed for? Oh, Lord, I hope you just have, help Peter um, just feel peace. I pray that he doesn't say any swear words while he's in there. Sure, they prayed for his comfort, but they certainly would have prayed for justice. Lord, don't let Peter sit there long. We pray you would bring your justice against this evil oppression. We pray for justice. We pray for God's kingdom to come. But we pray for it. Now, what I want you to see here is that the degree to which God uses leaders in the church, Satan will attack them. The degree to which God uses leaders in the church, Satan will attack them. This is, this is not just true of apostles. This is true of pastors. Every day, no name, nobody's ever heard of them. Pastors. When, when it comes to choosing elders, Paul writes to Timothy, he must be not, not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he will not fall into a disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Satan lays traps for leaders in the church. He specifically targets those who are leading the church. He lays out snares for them. Some of you are into hunting and snaring animals. They don't know it's coming. 
They get snared specifically because they do not know it's there. We are told that Satan lays out a snare for those who lead and serve the church publicly. So why do you think Herod goes after the leader? If you capture the leader, you can not only make an example of him, but you can intimidate his followers. You can intimidate his followers. And so Herod makes this connection very plain. This was all to be done before the Jewish nation. When Jerusalem was swelled with people, this was to be done in order to make an example of Peter before the biggest crowd that he could gather. And this was happening, as we said, at the Feast of of Unleavened Bread. Now, this is still while Israel, the nation as it had been known for hundreds of years with Jerusalem as its capital was still standing. What we need to remember and recognize about history was that God had promised and was bringing judgment against not only people in general who opposed Christ, but against Israel in particular. Jesus in Matthew chapter 21 has this almost a full-blown tirade against Israel and what she was about and what she was doing. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but you have to see this from Matthew uh, chapter 21, starting in verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. This is Jesus. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. He literally killed a fig tree on the spot. And the disciples saw it. They marveled. They said, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even you will say to this mountain as they entered the city. The temple was built on what they call the temple mount, the mountain where the temple was. You will say to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea and it will happen. And then when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They caught Jesus on the wrong day to ask that question. The way he's already thinking towards Israel is not favorable to them. He just cursed the fig tree as a sign that God was abandoning the work in national Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 teaches us this very clearly. Jesus Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question and you will tell me the answer. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? But they discussed among themselves because they were the exact same as Herod. If we answer this way, then we'll prove that Jesus is real. But if we answer this way, then the people will attack us. And we don't want that. So we can't answer truthfully because we are self-preservationists. We can't answer that truthfully. We can't deal with the truth because we are so concerned with ourselves. That's how they answer. If we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they hold John as a prophet. So they answered him, "Ah, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then there's a parable of two sons. Jesus, uh, God gives commands to two sons. One of them says, no, I'm not going to obey you. But in the end, obeys. But one of them says, yes, I, would, I will certainly obey you. But then goes off and secretly disobeys. And Jesus says, which son pleased the father? And it was the son who said, no, I'm not going to obey you. But then ended up submitting. 
It wasn't the son who gave lip service. Then he gives the parable of the tenants where they're plowing in the field and then the owner sends servants and they kill every single servant until the owner says, I will send my son. Then they throw out and kill the son because they want the inheritance. All of these stories are a promise of judgment against national Israel. In 67, from 67 to 70 AD, the Romans marched on Jerusalem. They walled up the city. They barred up the city. They starved the city out to the point where cannibalism was taking place. And then in the end, they destroyed the temple. They destroyed the walls. They tore down Jerusalem. The judgment that Jesus promised Israel came to them. Now, this is in the period before that happened. The temple is still there. Israel is still standing proud, having rejected Jesus Christ. They're still doing Passover. Oh, let's go worship the Lord in the Passover feast. Then we'll do unleavened bread. Isaiah tells us how God feels about those who would keep the symbols of faithfulness without any heart for obedience, without any heart for following or true righteousness. Isaiah chapter 1, it's at the very beginning of Isaiah's prophetic book to Israel. Isaiah 1.10 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. I don't delight in this. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings, incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath. And the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Wash yourselves, down in verse 16. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. This is God calling out and saying, your feasts and your ceremonies are empty. Your yes, I'll obey you, God. I'll obey you, God. I'll follow you. And then you go off and you do evil. God hates it. He does not accept it. They're a stench to him. Instead of a nice aroma of worship, it's a stench. This is the position Israel is in. And so are all who call on God, but refuse to turn their lives and their hearts over to him. It's empty festival. It's empty, meaningless festival. And God says, I've had enough of it. And God comes down on Israel very hard in 70 AD. And their legacy is destroyed and squashed. God, in this time where Peter was, had a particular interest in blocking what Herod had planned for the people. God had a particular interest with Israel in its position of influence and power to deny them the satisfaction of seeing the church persecuted. Now, the church was persecuted, but this public example that Herod wanted to make of Peter, God would simply not allow because of the words that Jesus had prepared for them. He said to Israel, you are going to be sorry you did this, that you rejected the son of God. And so Peter's arrested and then an angel comes and he's rescued. 
Remember, this is God is opposed to the proud. That's the first part of this verse we need to understand. God is opposed to Israel. He is opposed to Herod, though they be in power. But he's with his people. So the angel comes, and he, he jostles Peter awake, and he says, get your sandals on. Get your coat on. We are getting out of here. And the chains literally broke off. And, they were, and they, he says, put your coat on and follow me out of here. We're getting out of here. And the gate opened all on its own. And they left the prison. And they went outside, and then the angel took down a side road and just took off. And Peter's left standing there, and it's only at this moment that he realizes it wasn't a vision. Peter, remember just in a couple chapters earlier, had a vision of all the animals coming down, right? So he's sort of used to God speaking to him in this way to teach about what he was doing. So Peter kind of assumes his chains are falling off. He's like, oh, this would make a great song. Every chain is broken, right? I, I had to. That's not what this is about. This is not for great worship lyrics. Though God may break the chains of slavery to sin, he was busting real iron chains that were shackling Peter to the guards, and he leads him out. And only when he gets to the end, he's like, oh, this is real. I'm glad I brought my sandals with me, right? If he thought it was a vision the whole time, I'll just get my sandals when I wake up. But he took everything with him. It's like, no, you're out of prison now. If you've ever read the book, um, The Heavenly Man, there's a story of this happening in our age, somewhere in the 90s or the 80s. I don't know if you've read that, but the heavenly man, he was a missionary, uh, literally spreading the gospel in communist China, and God was doing all kinds of insanely unbelievable things to protect his witness. He literally walked out of a, a maximum security Chinese jail through the front doors with guards with guns, and, and, and there was a man waiting outside with a car for him to get in so he could go off and preach some more. Again, I don't know what God is going to do in every circumstance, but he does this kind of thing. God is opposed to the proud, but he stands with his church. He stands with his people. Now, what we have to recognize is that not every chain in the New Testament was broken. Paul the Apostle would have looked back on Peter's ministry and thought, I could use a little bit of that. He wrote Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians all from a jail cell. He wrote four books of the Bible from jail. He wrote in some of those books, I am an ambassador for Christ in chains. He said, my imprisonment has, has brought about the furtherance of the gospel and, and Christ is now proclaimed among the whole guard. So he's converting jailers, guards, centurions. He remained in his chains. Paul even said, while I'm in chains, other people are preaching in order to make me jealous. Other people are preaching. They're like, oh, Paul's in jail. We get to preach now and be famous. And Paul still says, I don't even care. I don't care that they're trying to embarrass me. I'm in chains down here. They're up there free preaching Christ. But either way, Jesus is being proclaimed. So Paul recognized that there is a unique opportunity and there is a unique purpose in every circumstance the church finds herself in. At this time in front of Jerusalem, God would deny them what they had expected. And Peter recognizes that. The iron gate opened for them and immediately the angel left. And when Peter came to himself, so he sort of like woke up. Listen to this in verse 11. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. That's why Peter was delivered. Because God was denying the Jews the satisfaction of one of their church leaders being paraded around. God said, not today. 
But in Paul's life, he had an entirely different purpose for allowing him to continue on in chains. So we need to recognize that we don't call out the words of Scripture and just say, this, you know, this is a timeless promise for me. God does not bust out every, you know, preacher from behind bars. He does not heal every disease as we see happen so often in, in the book of Acts. God has a unique purpose in sometimes miraculous deliverance, in sometimes plain natural suffering. But God uses every part of it for his glory. Uh, this past week, I sat in on six sermons on the book of Job. Um, from some un, uh, unknown to me, pastor in Bracebridge of a small church. And he brought heaven down. And he, he panned out the purposes of God in Job's immense suffering. And boy, was that just so strengthening for me that God, God is sovereign over every circumstance. Though we might think, you know, Satan is sitting on my back and, and I cannot bear this and doesn't God care about me? He does. He does. And he is calling forth as deep cries out to deep. So the Psalms say, when suffering adds to suffering adds to suffering, God is there. Whatever you're walking through, especially as you are faithful to Christ. If you are suffering because of your faithfulness to Christ, it is not in vain. It is not a waste. It is not, it is not falling on deaf ears or blind eyes, but God sees his church. And so Peter recognizes the purpose of his deliverance. I see that it's not about me. I mean, here's one way to look at it. Peter could think, oh, I must have so much important work left to do. Oh, look, God needed me out of jail. I better go write a book. And he does. He serves the Lord with all his heart, with his freedom. But what we recognize is that he sees God's purpose in it. And it's not about him. He, sees, he says, I see that God has delivered me from what the Jews were expecting. He has denied the Jews their satisfaction. He has denied the Jews any gloating over the, over the word of God or over the people of Christ. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, Remember, those were the ones who were at the cross of Christ. They saw the worst that Rome had done to Jesus. They saw their master literally die and bleed out there on the cross. And many who were gathered there praying. This is the church literally in her glory. Not literally, not eternally, not the glory that awaits, but this is the church in her element being bombarded from every direction, having their leaders snatched off. They were at the house of Mary, the mother of John. She opened her home to the church. And there they were praying. They were praying. They were praying. And as they were praying, probably for Peter's deliverance or for justice to come upon Rome and the, the king of the Jews there. And when he knocked at the door, a servant girl named Rhonda, or Rhoda, sorry, came to answer the door. She recognized Peter's voice and she just sprinted back and she told the prayer meeting what had happened. And she left him standing at the gate. She's like, no, no, no. He's like, I'm not a vision. I'm the real guy. I'm actually out of prison. I'm not just here to send you a message. So she runs and, and, and she tells them, Peter's here or something. I heard Peter's voice, and they're like, you're out of your mind. So here's the church praying probably for Peter's deliverance, and when God answers the prayer, they're like, no. Couldn't be. It's not so often how we pray. Like, let's just send these rockets up. Let's just see what happens. 
so often we pray faithlessly. You know, I, I forget which writer, um, I think it was Paul who said, pray with watchfulness. Pray with watchfulness. Keep an eye on your prayers. Keep an eye on the circumstances. Carol, every single week after their prayer, she sends me a prayer report. This is what we're praying for. This is how it's going. These are the things that are changing in our prayers. Keep an eye on your prayers with watchfulness. Don't fall asleep in your prayers and just ignore what God may or may not do through them. The church says, oh, you're out of your mind. Couldn't be Peter. We're only praying that God would deliver him. Doesn't say that, but I wonder if that's what they're praying. But she kept insisting. Oh, and there's what they say. And they kept saying, it's his angel. God sent you a vision. That's what it is. He's encouraging us through the vision of Peter. Even though his body is locked up, his spirit is free. They're just sensationalizing this and spiritualizing this and wrapping all kinds of tales around this. I mean, that would be way more weird than if Peter was just actually there. I'd be a lot more creeped out by the spirit of somebody I was praying for talking to me than the person coming and sending a a testimony of who God is and what he's doing. And so he came in, but Peter continued knocking, like, can somebody else come? This girl's not coming back. And so finally they come and they opened it and they were amazed. Oh, God really is with his church. Oh, God does hear our prayers. Oh, God is in charge of what's going on. God is not letting things slide down the Roman path. He's not letting Herod get his glory. God is actually with us. Friends, again, whether or not we are delivered from tribulation like this, we recognize that God is with us. God does not stand with the proud, with those who reject him, with those who turn from Jesus. He does not stand with him. He stands with the church. And so God demonstrated, especially to this local culture, especially to Israel, who was soon to be judged, that I am with my church, I am with my son. What did he say at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God said at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is the guy who's going to tell you what's going on. God has never and will never change his allegiance and his Love and upholding of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is reigning now, and in the end, he will turn over the kingdom to God the Father to the glory of God, as the 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. So the Father and the Son are eternally wed in mutual glory giving, and that will never be broken. So those who declare and live faithfully for Jesus Christ in his church are one and the same, protected by and in relationship with God the Father. There is no broken bond between those. Jesus was not just a good rabbi or teacher that we follow his teachings because that's a disconnect from God. Through Christ, we have access to God the Father and God is with his church and delivered Peter and proved to the church, I am with you. And then Peter says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. This is not the James who was just executed. He didn't come back to life. He was dead. This is James, the brother of Jesus who once mocked Jesus, who once did not believe in Jesus, who once was cavalier about who Jesus was. This James is now a believer and he is probably one of the heads of the church in Jerusalem. He's got one of the sort of most prominent jobs in the church now. He's converted to his own brother's messianic identity. 
He has turned to his own brother, Jesus Christ, in faith. This is James. God is continuing to convert. And this is a normal pattern for the church, that whatever goes on outside of the central area in Jerusalem gets reported back to that church. Because every, and this is what happens, when the Spirit falls, the report goes back to the church. When there's new converts, it goes back to the church. When there's a new miracle, it goes back to the church. Because the church in Jerusalem was that central testimony of what Jesus was doing. And it was kind of like keeping track and keeping the story straight so that the testimony was sure. So that the record we have of the church was, was true and didn't contradict itself. And everybody was on the same page. And Jerusalem was the facilitator of that. It's like a big church overseeing a lot of small church plants. It was that way for a while. But as we see again, the, the centralization of the church sort of disintegrated. And every church, as Paul told Titus, you, they need elders. Because there comes a point where the church doesn't have to report back to Jerusalem like, like Rome or like the Vatican or something. It's like every church is, is autonomously a representation of the body of Christ ruled over by godly elders. But especially in this time, before there were elders, before um, there was that, those local leaders and overseers, um, everything went back to Jerusalem. And so this was normal. Peter told them, go report back to James. And he departed and went to another place. Now, turns back to Herod and his guards. And this is why there's a warning. This is a warning not to oppose the people or the things of God. When day came, verse 18, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they be put to death. Then he went to, down to Judea and to Caesarea and spent time there. Part of the uh, code of Roman guards uh, was to, if they had failed in their duty, was to be executed. So if somebody escaped from a Roman guard, it's not because they were not paying attention. It's not because, they, oh, whoops. And which is why it was astounding when Jesus was missing from the tomb. They said, here's the story. We fell asleep. That would never happen because their lives were on the line. And so God, because of this miracle, these four soldiers were executed the next day. It is such a serious thing to oppose the things of God. Now, you might think, oh, these, you know, like, oh, I'm just, uh, what do I do? What do you do at work? You're a teacher. You're a programmer. Maybe you're a construction worker. You know, maybe you work from home. Maybe you're unemployed. You just think, oh, you know, Whatever I do is kind of insignificant until it comes to Sunday morning. Then, then God's watching me. That's what these guards did for a living. They worked for Herod. They answered to him. And they helped lock up an innocent man. Friends, it is so critical what you do with your vocation. Are you submitting your work and your service in every area of life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he will judge us based on how we lived according to the gospel in every area of our life. It's not just, oh, did you pray a nice prayer on Sunday? And then, you know, during the week you went and defended criminals from, you tried to keep criminals out of jail. In every area of life, we are to defend the cause of the, of the widow and the fatherless. As it said in Isaiah chapter 10, these guards, unfortunately, were beholden to a godless power. If I was one of those guards, I would have said, I quit. You know, I, I, I'm saying that would have been the wise thing to do. 
You know, I don't know what God has for those who follow him, but sometimes it is better to lose your job. It's better to walk away from something godless than it is to continue in it because God takes seriously his law and his people. And so these four soldiers are executed. And we're going to learn next week when Alan brings the word that Herod dies soon after. This was a fatal mistake on Herod's part to oppose himself to God's people. A fatal mistake. And again, I don't know who will hear this message when it goes online or who's here, but, it, but I warn and I ask those in our town, those in our region, those in our province, do not diminish the work of God. Do not try to sit on it. Do not try to legislate against it. They may and we may suffer. But the call of the church is turn to the living God now and these soldiers, I, I pray they heard the gospel from Peter. But this is the reality. You do not oppose yourself to the work of God. Romans chapter 8 says, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? Again, this is not always manifest in immediate justice. We don't always see our guards or our oppressors fall dead. We won't always see that, but God is just. He is a just God and he will stand by his word. The scriptures assure us of God's intention for the world. The scriptures promise us what God is doing to those who oppose him. Today is the day of grace to turn to receive Christ. Friends, we also need to recognize that persecution draws attention to the Christian church. We live in such an apathetic time. We can go out on the streets and say, Jesus is Lord. And people say, that's good for you. I could care less. But when they suffer, oh, they, don't they come and turn and say, where's God in this? But when persecution comes, it gives us opportunity to clarify who we are, to clarify our message, to declare it with boldness. God uses everything. And friends, the suffering of the church will not be wasted on our culture because we will declare the mighty works of God in the midst of it. So what's, there's so much in this, and I know I've, I've gone long, but as I prayed before the service began, I just thought, Lord, my prayer for us is that we would place our trust in the rock-solid but invisible God, even while our eyes see iron chains. And again, I, maybe I'm making a metaphor out of that, okay? But even as we see iron chains in our culture, in our world around us, the slipping into sin, godless powers persecuting the church, whatever is before the church, whatever difficulty presents itself, that we see with our eyes and touch with our hands, and sometimes we are locked up. Paul said, though I am in chains, the word of God is not bound. That's the confidence of the church. So my prayer is that we would place our trust in the rock-solid yet invisible God, while he builds his church, even as our eyes behold iron chains. That's a, that's a tall task for the church, but it is our comfort that God is with his people. Let's pray.